spine and sprocket. The book to read is not the one that thinks for you, but the one which makes you think. A classic is a book that is never finished saying what it has to say. No two persons ever read the same book. That is part of the beauty of all literature. You discover that your longings are universal longings, that you're not lonely and isolated from anyone. You belong. Amid the vivid blue canopy of a late summer sky, hundreds of bulbous, olive drab C-47 Skytrain aircraft flew in practiced formations. Planes literally filled the gentle heavens, almost as if they were multiplying their numbers while in midair. They comprised the most ambitious aerial armada in history. Inside one of the leading C-47s, Brigadier General James Gavin, commanding officer of the 82nd Airborne Division, stood near an open door, scanning, with his piercing blue eyes, the skies outside and the ground some 1,500 feet below. He was a bit surprised by the deep green hue of the Dutch countryside. Here and there, clumps of red-tiled roofs jutted out of the green landscape, marking the location of villages, each of which looked alike to the youthful general. All around him, impossibly vast numbers of C-47s bobbed slightly up and down as they knifed through pockets of air, each one of them flying inexorably toward an unseen drop zone. The sound produced by this propeller-driven armada was immense, like the buzzing hum of several million bees. The drone of the engines mixed uneasily with the whipping of the wind, plus the natural creaking and groaning of each plane's thin metal skin produce a steady soundtrack of noise. That's the opening text from tonight's book that we're going to be discussing, which is September Hope, The American Side of a Bridge Too Far by John C. McManus. That was read by the in- in- inimitable Dave Kleinschmidt. Yeah, we need to get a reader. <laughs> A professional reader. Yes. We could get Richard Kiley, but he died a few years ago. That would have been, been tough. Cool. Orson <laughs> Welles, maybe. I am David Kleinschmidt, and Mike, across from me is... Mike Lemke. I'm Jeff Hallett, and we have a guest tonight, and you are? Jim McDermott. Are you sure? I'm p- <laughs> Can you prove positive. it? <laughs> Depends on what you um, consider proof, yeah. evidence. We'll take your word for it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, so, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And... We invited you because uh, you're a bit of a World War II aficionado, and uh, and you begged us, and you paid us money. <laughs> exactly. I think it's the check I wrote that did it. Yeah, yeah. Not my expertise. Yeah. So this is um, I I made the pick for this reading selection, and I can't remember where I came up with this, but just in reading the first. 15 pages or so, I thought this is a great read, and so I recommend it, and I hope everybody enjoyed it. So, uh, September Hope is a, a a retelling of the American side of A Bridge Too Far, and I have not read any other books about 
Operation Market Garden in World War II. Is anybody else? I read Arnhem, but probably 18, 20 years ago, so I don't remember it that much. Mm. And that, that was probably the book. And there aren't too many books. Um, you know, I, I, tried, I tried to find some others about the American side. I mean, there are some that are unit-specific, but beyond that, there isn't anything like this that, that, that um, defines the whole scope of the American side of the operation. So I, I loved it, yeah. And I wonder why that is. Because it seems like the American certainly played as big a role or bigger than yeah, the British that, did anyway. That's a question. I kind of wondered that m- myself. I don't know if it's because this is a failure or we back away from it a little bit. I mean, no. it definitely was a British operation, though. Uh, you know, Montgomery was in charge of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, if we're going to start there, let's start in. Why did Eisenhower approve this? Well, that's a very good question. And so we'll defer to Dave, who's the, our Eisenhower expert, well, simply because he looks a little <laughs> bit like Eisenhower. I would jump back to no. other books. You have... Um, <laughs> Um, you have Pegasus. I just thought your shoe was a mouse. No, it's a, <laughs> just a big shoe. It just moved and scared me. That would me. be a big mouse. <laughs> um, the Pegasus Bridge by Ambrose, not Ambrose Beers. Stephen Ambrose? Stephen Ambrose. Oh, okay. Pegasus Bridge. Nice little short book on the you know, ASL fame mm-hmm. game we play. Some of yeah. us play. Um, and who wrote The Longest Stay? Uh, Cornelius Ryan. Ryan. Okay, so I read. A, then he did he write a bridge too far? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, then I think I had read the longest day. Did either any of you read a bridge too far? No, that may have been I, the book I read, not Arnhem. I'm not sure. Yeah, I no, I didn't. That. I didn't read it. I read the book that the movie was based on. So if it was um, a bridge, yeah, too, a bridge too far. Oh, yeah, same okay. title. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, right. All right. So it was the same title. Then that's the one I read. Yeah. Well, we're going to tie this reading in with uh, the film A Bridge Too Far for the next episode. Right. Getting into yeah, what well, what I have one of the first things I made a note of, right? The opening gets into then the decision making at the mm-hmm. headquarters, and I thought I could read this little section too. Uh, needless to say, Bradley was livid. It was a strategy by subterfuge. He later wrote, "Dangerously foolhardy, the wrong plan at the wrong time in the wrong place." Some of the U.S. airmen were angry at Ike's orders to cease airlifting supplies to Bradley in favor of Montgomery and Market Garden. The entire Holland operation smacked a political move and one of aggrandizement for Montgomery, a perfect ass as a man as at a commander. Colonel James Duke, the ninth troop carrier command chief, wrote bitterly, that's what he had said bitterly, Montgomery, of course, saw it all much differently. The promise of more trucks, supplies immediately mollified him. I'm grateful to you personally and to Beetle for all you're doing for us. He cabled Ike. So this is something for Ike, and why... Did he approve it then? After only meeting with him for an hour. Mm. With Monty? Yeah, that's, that's in here, here somewhere. <laughs> that, that just struck me as odd. And Eisenhower was quiet through most of the meeting, just sitting there stewing over um, the way Montgomery was talking to him and, and treating him. And at one point, he just taps him on the knee and says, you can't talk to me like that. Yeah, and that, was that was a good scene. In the yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that scene. I don't yeah. know, and I don't know if we need to do. I'm sorry, Mike. If we need to do a really just quick a very recap quick of recap what of plan what is. it is, yes. what Operation Market Garden yeah, Mike, was. Mike, you want to explain what Market Garden was? Uh, according to Montgomery, it was the um, forget the quote, but the largest airdrop of troops in history. They were going to drop behind uh, anywhere from what thirty to sixty miles behind German front lines. Take. Seven or eight key bridges, maybe yeah, ten maybe, yeah. Yeah, key maybe bridges right. along the, uh, not quite the Rhine, but maybe the Rhine up by Arnhem, right? Yes. Um, and then some other rivers that fed into the Rhine. But anyway, um, 
take those bridges, hold them until the British tank corps, I can't remember the number, uh, was able to come up that road, go over the bridges, and then go into Germany and Montgomery's wish was to have them all then just keep driving right on into Berlin. Before Christmas. Before Well, before Christmas, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. So his plan was to end the war then six months earlier or more than it actually ended. Right. And part of part of the plan was that he anticipated resistance from teenagers and old men. And it turned out... Very different from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't just off second-line troops. No, it wasn't no, second-line troops. Yeah. yeah. In the area. Um, I thought in the film, we can make some references to that. Yeah. Uh, in the introduction, the woman narrator said... Eisenhower made it to appease. I can look it up. Yeah, yes, she said he he did it. He got pressure from above. Oh, pressure to approve from above the plan. To approve the plan. So who's above the supreme commander of the Allied forces? Churchill, Churchill, and, and, and Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Yeah, Roosevelt. Yeah, that's it. Now, is that? Do we know that for a fact? Has anyone ever mm. studied that? I haven't. I, I have no idea, but I want to go back and do that because the, the question, that's what I came away from the book, is why did this even happen? Yeah. I mean, well, I sus- I, yeah. if I had to guess, I would suspect that Churchill would really wanted to see some a British, British. win, a big British mm-hmm. win in Europe. And uh, I think he was a little uh, embarrassed that they hadn't been more effective, maybe, in in fighting in Europe. They were doing well. They were doing well enough in Italy, and they did fine in Africa. But he wanted a big push in in Europe. One of the reasons they weren't doing well is because they the, the supply situation. And if Montgomery had taken the Scheldt estuary or whatever that area to make Antwerp usable, then the port they might have done better. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a little bit on. Wasn't Montgomery in the north? He was. But my impression from the book was that. Um, Eisenhower's orders to him were quite ambiguous. That's how mm. Montgomery played them and never went back to do that. So. Yeah. It sounded like also Montgomery wanted to... Um, the British people were suffering. The V2s, the V1s were landing. The V2s had just right. started. True. Uh, he, he wanted to do something dramatic and uh, something that had a chance to end the war quickly because he already recognized that the British were a second-class citizen in this in this alliance <laughs> to the United States, and it was only going to get worse. And, the, you know, and he wanted to try and do whatever he could to end the war quickly. It turned out to not be a good plan, but that yeah. was, it was, I think he was motivated by that. And things were moving slowly because they, the Allied forces, it was a very broad front, very gradual progress that they were making, uh, oh, simply from the physics of it. Uh, of moving across. Do you think and, Russia getting to Poland by August of that year too has something to do with it? Maybe. Oh, that could be. Probably. I mean, they weren't. In the end, they weren't racing to Berlin because Eisenhower cut off fuel right to Patton, or wanted to slow things down a he little. Patton down, he didn't but, see. I know he didn't see the need for American boys to die to some Russian or German Volkssturm little kid yeah. with a twelve-year-old with a Panzerfaust. That in Berlin had he, already been decided at Potsdam, who was going to control different sectors of it. So there really was no need other than the psychological yeah there benefit. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fascinating. We did the fall of Berlin previously, yeah. and mm-hmm. amazing story with the guys fleeing to, to the American side, the Germans yeah, trying to and all. But so it seems like a, a crazy, audacious. Plan, and, and had some key faults that we can 
we can pick on right away? What What are uh, some of the obvious? Money. Yeah, money. <laughs> well, money. <laughs> well, when I was uh, young, you know, when I was first starting reading war books. Well, Jim and I, we right, we're out of college. We weren't war. We weren't history majors or no that right, big a buff right. until we really got out of college. Right I would agree. During yeah, now. I would agree. And then yeah. we started reading books, sharing books, and yeah. um, I had. Got through one of those cheap, you know, mail things. Buy a bunch of books for like five bucks each, and got one called Montgomery. And then I was gaming with um, another guy out from ProSec Shop, and uh, he says, oh, I "Saw my book." And he says, "Oh, I hate that guy." Well, to me, these were all the generals. These were all the great men, and I was just that naive as a rookie mm-hmm. historian or reader, or you know, yeah. And boy, he hated Monty. And so then I kind of was paid a lot of attention. What does everyone else think? And here you go. Yeah. yeah. This book does not speak highly of him. But it's interesting you say that, the, the fail because of Montgomery. It wasn't really his plan. It would have been the staff people who created it. And then when the battle started, he did nothing. That's the weird yeah, part. That's, that, that was strange. He didn't step back. So is, is that what you mean, that he didn't get in there and was engaged in, in controlling the battle? I think or? only when it went bad. He suddenly acted like he didn't, is the impression I got from the book, he acted like it wasn't his resp- responsibility, mm. which mm. I thought was shocking. Yeah, it is. It is. Because it seemed very much like his responsibility. And there, there's a picture in the book of, of Monty and Eisenhower and um, Bradley. There we go. Bradley um, standing over uh, a map looking at it. And you could tell Bradley, he looked upset. Even in that picture, he looked upset. <laughs> Just like, being around, is, Monty. <laughs> like, this is not a good plan. And the plan was, I mean, it was a doable plan, but it's the kind of stuff you do in a war game. To, it's kind of like that, let's see what will happen. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd, when I play war games, which I do with a couple of you guys, that's kind of how I play. It's not, <laughs> yeah, am I going to play it safe? Yeah. It's, let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. So this idea to, you know, it required, first of all, it required um, precision in the drops. So they had to do the, the paratrooping during the day. I think failed intelligence when the one guy was telling Bedell Smith about the Panzer divisions. Mm-hmm. He saw yeah. right. They knew more and they thought, well, very skeptical about that, but, um, but we too late to stop it. Right. Let's go. And right. they knew the radios were going to not work. Movie that the radios oh, yeah. were that right. bad. Yeah. I don't think that was in the. It book. didn't really well, come okay. up in the yeah. book that much. Right. No. But um, and the, I think it was because it was more about Arnhem. Yeah. Than the Americans. Yes. Yeah, that the British are the British radios are the ones that didn't work. Mm. Yeah, okay. it would so. be difficult. They would have problems fighting off counterattacks. Right mm-hmm. on this very long, long narrow attack. corridor, it'd be easy to be attacked from the sides. And yeah. it required um, really great timing. And it required everything to go right. Yeah. If something went wrong, there was no... No time to... You didn't have a couple extra days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Especially at Arnhem, obviously. And it's not like we're giving anything away here. These are sort of the thoughts of the key players in the whole project yeah. very early on. Right at yeah. the beginning. Jim Gavin. I call him Jim. Yeah. <laughs> General yeah. James Gavin. He lets me call him Jim. And all of the others were were very skeptical right from the get-go. Yeah, in, in the book and in the movie both, um, he mentions Jim Gavin being briefed about the plan and, and thinking the guy was crazy and yeah. the plan was ridiculous. Yeah. But and I that, guess Ike wanted to, use the, he wanted to use the Airborne, too. They were sitting around. They'd had a bunch of canceled missions. That's true. It was sort of like, well, here's one that might have a chance, and okay, let's just let's see what happens, so... 
Yeah, it's funny how these decisions are made, though. I mean, you give generals toys and they want to use yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. When I'm teaching that to kids in terms of World War One, because you got your big four reasons: nationalism, alliances, militarism, and imperialism. That if you have this big army, you're more likely to get into a fight. Mm-hmm. Mm. Or I try to make it like kid language. If you're packing and someone jumps you, you're more likely to shoot. The other gang, I have a lot of gangs in my school. Is that school. how the kids? No, I'm just kidding. Not in my, not in my school. That's how you relate to that. Not in my school. It's, it's funny for Dave to be saying this because he's wearing a T-shirt with a Big Boy on it. <laughs> Isn't that great? You don't look. You don't sound that tough. And I, no, and I wear. You I don't wear, look that tough. I wear this to the tough. gym too. So I came from the gym, and I always wonder. I don't know if a fat guy like me should be wearing a big boy shirt to the gym. It just doesn't seem right. So I'll do well, it. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it'll be yeah, fun. That's right. Irony. Yeah. 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 It's, it's redundant. Is that what? Oh, oh, sorry. Irony. Yeah, that's Dave's documentary, so. Pumping Irony. But, but it's coming up. We just, but sometimes when I'm actually even, even teaching that, I'm thinking, is that actually true? That if a nation has the stuff, they might be more willing to use it? And here we have an example of... A, they're already in war, but yeah, you got these guys. They're trained. May as well utilize it. I yep. think so. Reagan built up the military, and one of the things they really invested in were like the Tomahawk missile. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And look how quickly did they use them when they first got into the Gulf and stuff, and to the point where they depleted them. And it's ancient technology now, I guess. But you don't hear anything more about them. Hmm. So yeah, use them so that you don't. Otherwise, you got to throw them out. That's right, <laughs> and that's creates or, or, a whole, and whole other problem. Kids or, or find them in the them. garbage. Yeah, we're right, using when sneak. you invade Granada. You know, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm yeah. a little overkill. <laughs> it was like, yeah, we got this big army, but the U.S. Let's go, let's go fight with somebody. So they picked on Granada. But is it fair to say the U.S. has built up an arsenal and is restrained in using it? That it doesn't cause us to. You mean in now or World War Two? Um, at various times throughout history. Mm. I mean, we didn't go into World War II because we had a big army. Well, we didn't have. We it did, didn't have a big army. Yeah, we had right. to build an army. Yeah, I had well, to build one. Then. We have it today, the biggest, and I don't think we're. I don't think we have, uh, itching we have the biggest. Today. Yeah, yeah, but well, we're not. China itching. and Russia are probably both bigger. Well, I think we spend the Cold more. War. We we build up the troops, and then they had an idea that they had to build up conventional troops to, you know, counter any threat that Russia might have or something like that. And, and I but we, but still, we, we weren't looking to use them. Granada, fair uh, to Panama. Say? Oh, yeah, but those were minor. I mean, I yeah. Know. I mean, I consider today the United States to be packing, and we're not itching to go. Take well, I think out. you reach that point. It kind of, it, it kind of is like that episode of Longstreet, where uh, Bruce Lee is teaching Longstreet, Jeet Kundo. Any kung fu guys here? Any <laughs> guys kung? Okay, <laughs> sorry. I'm gonna. This is gonna be lost on a lot of people. <laughs> But, this is not General but, Longstreet. But Longstreet says uh, he, he's a blind detective played by James Franciscus. Okay. Who appeared in the third uh, Planet of the Apes movie. Uh-huh. Anyway. Brent. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Second. Bruce time. Lee said, I don't want to teach you Jeet Kune Do. Why do you want to? I don't, I don't want to teach you to fight. And Longstreet says, look, just learning Jeet Kune Do is enough. Just by learning it, I, I feel like I will never have to use it. Deterrent. So, it, mm. It's kind of the deterrent. So yeah. and certainly we, the, we possess all these weapons, and it gives us the maybe the wisdom to not use it, but to know, but to also know if anybody ever pushes us too far. Well, in the nuclear deterrence, yeah, the clear one where no one's yeah. launched one since. But we're digressing a little bit. That's okay. We, we digress, except for the Bruce Lee part, which is fits right <laughs> oh, in. Oh, that's right on. 
Bruce Lee fits in any show. And here's a little bit more on that. Page 43, the only way to address Market Garden's many deficiencies was to cancel it. None of the senior allied officers was willing to do that. All for their own reasons. Here we go. Yeah. Oh, look, I highlighted it. Wasn't I clever? I knew someone would ask. Brereton wanted to prove the relevance of the Airborne. There's Mike's thing. Monty wanted to pursue his dream of knifing into northern Germany, taking Berlin and ending the war. Browning, having sat on the sidelines for years, wanted to lead a great operation. Eisenhower... The man most responsible wanted so badly to forge compromise and harmony yeah. among his multinational command that he was willing to detract from the broad front concept. Hmm. Thus, no one was willing to do what must be done, kill Market Garden in At, its cradle. Yeah. Mm. yeah, And that, that section made me want to read more about Eisenhower. Exactly. Yeah, so I, I'd like I, to know more yeah, yeah. about the guy who, who caved in on this Yeah, and that ends ridiculous chap- chapter 2. Chapter 3 was called Foreboding. And I think that is where... There you know, was we, a lot of foreboding in this book. <laughs> yeah, there really was. There was a lot of guys sitting in tents saying, tomorrow I'm going to die, Yeah, which was kind of interesting that... Well, I guess, I don't know. I You know, you have so many guys that are obviously going to die the next day, and but some of them really could feel it, and I don't, I'm glad I've never been in the situation to... <laughs> well, yeah. ...to feel one way or the other about that, but it's interesting that that was a real theme, I, I thought, in this book was the foreboding... <clears throat> They they really kept it up uh, way more than the movie did. Oh I, yeah, I think yeah, the movie, we'll, yeah. which we'll be talking well, about. Probably next no one, more but. so than waiting all day long for the boats to come to make that crossing. Right. Oh gosh, and, that was and, unbelievable. And, and I mean, like if the four of us were sitting there and you're terrified to do it, you're not going to say that, and because you don't want the other guys to think that you're afraid, yeah. and, and you're not really aware that they're just as frightened as you. Yeah. So if a couple of them start talking, let's not do this. <laughs> Yeah, because what a crazy idea that was. Oh, yeah, to go across that river in, in broad daylight. Yeah, I don't know. That was a that was a scary scene in the book. Yeah, he did a really good job of, of making it terrifying. And I think, and I think, do we ask now, did you overall like the book? Yeah, save it for I, the I end? did, yeah. Yeah, I liked it. I, um, yeah, I did. I didn't know that much about Market Garden going into it, so I, I now I feel like I need to read about the bigger picture and the British side and all that, so um, to get a little bit more up to speed. But I liked it. I thought it was well-researched. He had a lot of anecdotal... Um, really well-researched. Yeah. 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 yeah, I don't know where he got some of those stories of the just the regular guys sitting in their tent thinking they're going to die. How did he find those stories? Yeah, a lot even? of research, and he's got a lot. Yeah. He's got all his notes in the back, so it's yeah. very, you can go look up all these sources. It's very, very thick with all his, his footnotes. Um, but and it's more modern and no, I love the book actually a lot, a lot, and I liked it because it got down into the perspective of those individual soldiers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. it's a very modern book in that. Yeah, sense. starting yeah. with Montgomery and Eisenhower, but then getting down into the into the tent and into the boat yeah. and into actual into the boat. Yeah, yeah. into squad level actions. Yeah. into that's what I liked was there was uh, all all sorts of uh, point of view. There was a very uh, overall point of view. From above, and then you'd get down to people even that weren't directly involved in fighting. There was one section where a commander was pleading with the British Air Force to please, please, please drop them in the right spot. Hmm. He says, um, I charge you all, put us down in Holland or put us down in hell, but put us down all in one place 
or I will hound you to your graves. <laughs> you know, you can just feel a lot of little quotes like that uh, where you can really get the perspective of these guys and how much they felt for their men, yeah, for their country, for their for this mission, even though they thought it was a crazy mission, but still how determined they were. Almost, um, it's like that's how the whole thing went. No one guy would go, but because they were all going, you just wait for the guy next to you to take the first step, then you take the first step, and then the guy next to you takes the first step. Pretty soon you're all going. That's the problem with men, isn't it? That's the way we are. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. Yeah. Come on, we're going this way. Yeah. But he, he really covered well the whole C-47 landing experience yeah. coming in, the, the gliders. and I like the I, scene I never with, even heard of those gliders. That was amazing to me that they're flying Jeeps in. And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was crazy. Are they made of canvas, those gliders, or they're plywood? Very, plywood? very light, yeah. Okay. Plywood, yeah. Canvas, too. Because they could break on impact a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the scene he's got here where all these people get out to look at 1,544 transport planes, 478 gliders in the sky, flying over all the citizens, stop traffic, all get out and watch yeah. this armada go by. That must have been really powerful. Are the gliders, they're towed, right? They're towed. Exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and they're released, and then they go in on their own. Often, like at Pegasus Bridge, or where they want to come in really quiet, they release them, and then the other planes turn back. Mm. Yeah. The gliders just silently come in yeah. and, and land. Jeez. But, yeah, with Jeeps or with, uh, yeah, guns, AT guns, small yeah, AT crazy, guns. yeah. I like this like part. Um, at the end of the of Chapter 3, I just wrote some note. There was two clear problems with the plan at this point. Lindquist didn't understand his instructions, and I'm trying to remember exactly who Lindquist was, but it, it brought to the forefront this idea that some of these guys, for whatever reason, did not understand what they were supposed to be doing. And I can well, believe they, that. They only had a week, right? They had yeah. a week. They had a week. Yeah. So Colonel Lindquist, it says here, Colonel Lindquist had trouble reconciling Gavin's priorities for the two objectives of holding uh, Bergendahl and grabbing the bridge. So it's like he wasn't sure which mm. way he was supposed to go. Imagine going into something so critical, such an amazingly mm. difficult operation, and not really sure what your objectives are. But and not being but, able to email anybody. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not raise your hand. You, you don't phone. raise your hand and say, you know, I, I, sorry, I'm still not clear. <laughs> which way do you want me to go? <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. the British took a really... Um, a bad, sort of a bad turn in trying to find a good spot to be dropped near Arnhem. Because there was not a good spot. Drop miles out yeah. or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. eight that miles away. Like a long way. Yeah. For various little reasons, one, the Air Force didn't want to lose any planes, so they were afraid to go too close to the bridge, and then they were looking for. They said, you know, if we well, if we drop you here, then we can't get, we can't bank away and get away in time because there's uh, right too much flak, too much flak in this other area, so. That was interesting how the airborne aren't, you know, made to hold spots. They're not made to be like regular infantry soldiers. They're trained totally differently and, and made to fly in, do something, hang out and hold it for a couple and days. Be relieved. But to be dropped eight miles away and then not get relief for two weeks. <sighs> Disaster, yeah. 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 And the drop itself had lots of uh, scary problems. 
Descending northwest of Saan, Private Don Burgett marveled at the sheer number of jumpers and planes in the air around him, more than he had ever seen before. Below, many soldiers from his battalion were already on the ground, freeing themselves from their harnesses, assembling on the drop zone. He looked back up and froze. A C-47 was coming straight at me. Its poor engine was aflame, trailing smoke. There were so many jumpers still in the air that Birgit wondered how the plane could possibly avoid them. As the aircraft bore through the sky, the troopers disgorged from the door. At the same time, Birgit could clearly see the pilot in the cockpit. His eyes were wide and round as he was being shaken by the controls. I was going to be killed. I just knew it. But Birgit was lucky. He drew his legs up and the plane buzzed underneath them, missing him by a matter of a few feet. In that instant, as the aircraft sailed by, Birgit stared at the stricken pilot. His gaze was riveted straight ahead. He knew the fate that awaited him and his crew. A few horrifying seconds later, the aircraft hit two unsuspecting troopers, the propellers cutting them to pieces. After that, the plane hit the ground, flipped up on its right wing, did a somersault, and disintegrated into a pile of wreckage. Yeah. Wow. Pretty horrifying. Mm-hmm. Never, never heard of that before. No. Planes going through guys trying. No, you know, you just, you, I've never seen that in a movie. No. I think McManus did a great job of describing the drop. Mm-hmm. Because that that whole thing, and it's quite a long uh, chapter, with all the, with all kinds of detail, the fighter escort that way went along with them. Yeah, and how the drop was done, and the—I um, mean, it's just amazing to think about. I highlighted something here. Yeah, he also talks a lot about the weaponry, mm-hmm. how, how the mortars were used, the types of guns, everything a, a guy had to pack in his pack. I had that highlighted somewhere. Pounds or something. Yes, right? they were, they were I had the whole carry. list here. But this part is always very intriguing. For me, this kind of part, it says a handful of troopers, a few dozen at most, refused to jump or could not do so because of equipment yeah. mishaps, wounds, or illness. They returned to England in their planes to face a court-martial or receive medical care, whichever was appropriate. And I'm always really interested in that because I always think that would be me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know? I would be the guy who think, you know, I'm not going. Yeah. They can't make me go. And it's amazing they couldn't make them go there were some guys i don't know where they you want me to do what like yeah. putting like trying to put a cat into a sink of water do they just their arms just get real wide when they're head, when they get close to the door oh, man. it's like yeah that would be me i'd have some excuse i got something in my eye well there, you know there's self-inflicted wounds and things yeah i know too. yeah I know. quite a few of quite a few of those things going on one of the things about his what he wrote about though he it seemed like very often i don't know if it bothered me or not but very often and all the way throughout the book he had really detailed descriptions of wounds and what metal and shrapnel and wood does to a a human body i mean it was really gosh it was just after a while i was kind of like i don't know if i want to read any more about that i (laughs) i got the picture yeah oh i had that the other night um I was reading the book because I was still reading the book the other night, and I, re- I had read about a hundred pages, and uh, 
I said to my wife, I need a break from this. I think I'll put the movie in. And I, so I put the movie in the DVD. I said, do you want to watch this movie? And she said, yeah. And I, I, I was going to start the movie and I thought, nah, let's watch Love Actually or something or Santa Claus, some Santa Claus movie. I just had enough. I mean, it's really, really. Oh yeah. I just keep pouring right over it. Oh, I mean, it's fascinating, but it is horrifying. <laughs> And Dave still thinks that Mike's shoe is a mouse. I did. I bring, again, I thought, bring it in here. I'll bring, I'll bring. It's because we have a hamster or something at home. That I'm, oh. oh, okay. Um, but, yeah, I made a note way back in the book here. He talks about the bouncing Bettys, the other, the small igniter prongs emerging from the ground when Trip the Mine pops out until it's waist high and explodes. Uh, the Teller Mines, which look like a man, and, and a Teller Mine, which looked like an undersized manhole cover and could destroy a vehicle. What it could do to a man is best left unsaid. Yeah. I know, after reading everything, I, also <laughs> I know, yeah. and I read that sentence too, and I'm like, why did you stop now? Yeah. You know? That's what I wrote. After all the other gore? <laughs> yeah. <you> just... <laughs> Two guys getting chewed up by a plane propeller, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. a landmine we can't deal with. Yeah, I found that the uh, probably the only thing that I really stood out as I would have edited that out if I were the... Editor, not but I didn't know they had yeah. bouncing Bettys in World War II. I thought yeah, I, did, I didn't realize that either. Yeah. I remember them in my Time Life book about the Desert War or something, mm. and showed how it would go up and then explode, and, right. yeah. and the guy under it typically was safer. Like the guy that triggered it, mm-hmm. some of them went up, and if it hit the right angle, it would shower down in a V, okay. backward mm. V shape, and the guy that triggered it might be the safest oh, wow. as the things mm. went out around him. Huh. Um, but he, I have a. For the chapter of Frenzy, a good update of the story so far. Should I run through that? Sure, for yeah. The, yeah. For the story. Uh, the first hours of September 18th, tick-tocked on clocks all over Holland. This was the situation. All three Allied Airborne divisions were firmly on the ground with minimal losses. None of the three divisions were at full strength yet. Oh, there you go. There's another th- issue, right? All dependent on follow-up drops. The Airborne landings had caught the Germans by surprise, and they were still off balance. 101st Airborne was firmly in control of the bridges at Vagel and Saint-Odenwald. The Germans had blown the Saan bridges in their faces. Or do you say Saan? Or do you say Saan? I said Saan. Saan. Bridge in their faces, right? That's where the Americans were going for that bridge? Yeah. Ellie Gould? Yeah. <laughs> Not in the book. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. That's the movie. That's right. They were right. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that soon. <laughs> Colonel Sink is in the process of moving his regiment over and improvised footbridge in preparations for the post-on push to Eindhoven. Lieutenant Wurzbowski and his little hardcore platoon were cut off a few hundred yards from the best bridges. Not the best as in quality. Mm-hmm. Wasn't right. best the name of a location? Yeah. yeah. So it took me a while to figure it out. I kept looking for, right. why are these the best bridges? Why is he describing them? Are they gold-plated? <laughs> I think, Yes. I think they were just well constructed. <laughs> German and engineering, maybe German engineering. Yeah, that could be. No offense to our Hollander friends. Yeah, uh, uh, what's the name for those people? Uh, Dutch. Yeah. Well, wait, they live in Holland. Oh, oh. Does this Dutch. have something to do with the Netherlands again? I think it does. It might. Yeah. The Netherlanders. France tried it. There were some orange flags, oh. weren't there? Flying in the. There was oh, a lot of orange. There. Yeah. Yes, there was a lot of orange. Um. A major battle was looming between the 59th Infantry Division and the 502nd Parachute Regiment. 101st was in control of the narrow corridor, stre- stretching south of Sonda Vagel. And Horrocks Corps had l- not linked up with 101st yet. And so that's kind of what was happening so far. Oh, to the north, the 82nd was in control 
around of a pocket by the grave bridges bridge to the gross beak heights because there's just a lot of different things going on gavin's men had succeeded in capturing only two of their bridges the ones at grave and at human the nijmegen bridges of course were still beneath their reach and the germans had blown two other bridges bridges eight and nine oh there were nine uh in the face of all american troops Mm -hmm. so there's kind of all that's going on i thought he did a nice job of moving between all those actions he did. I I was getting. I did get confused for a while. It took a. Yeah, uh, it took, you need to it have a, a bit, hard nut to it. Yeah, yeah, it took a bit for me to really figure out that it was the the hundred and first uh, at Eindhoven, the eighty second at Nijmegen, and then the first uh, British, British Airborne Division at Arnhem. Arnhem. Yeah, took me, and I'm still. I thought I got that right. Yeah, I, got I that thought right. there yeah. still could have been a, a better map. He's got good yeah. maps, but it seemed like yeah, the, you needed one. Good one was one. missing. One, yeah, one, one bigger overall. One? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I talk to him, I'll tell him. <laughs> Can you add a map to Matt? Do you call him Mac? John McManus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So meanwhile, while they've got all this going on, trying to hold these different areas, thirty core, all the tanks and everything, are uh, trying to come up the road. Which apparently was not a that great a road, and not that easy to get down with all of the German activity around there. Which I thought must have been just. Uh, as I was reading on the day when I read a hundred pages, I thought I really feel the frustration more than when I was just reading little bits here and there. I was really feeling mm. the the weight of the frustration for everybody in the conflict as more and more time would go on. They were falling farther and farther behind schedule. And, but how about the frustration of those guys that cross the river, and then the British tanks don't don't move on and go through to right, Arm. right. Yeah, Man, that was yeah, just, that was unbelievable. That yeah, they felt like their efforts were wasted. Yeah, and that they had made a, such a great sacrifice, and then the British that was really frustrating. Orders, but then also he goes on to explain that it would have been kind of futile on their part, anyways, because they they hadn't really regrouped and there weren't yeah. enough of them yeah. To, yeah. to go on. It's like and moving tanks in ASL. You got to have some infantry support, I guess. Yeah. And by then, I mean, when he doesn't say this in here, when was um, John Frost and his division? When did they surrender? I mean, that may have already happened by then. I mean, they had no idea they were mm-hmm. on radio communication with yeah. that entire right. group, right? Right. They held out pretty long. They were Two they were there days. nine days, I think. I think yeah. more, I think a week. Yeah. I don't think that long. Maybe not. In the movie, it was nine Jeff, days. Jeff, you got the... It was you nine got days? The, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah do you have the game? Uh, Gavin's Ar- Gambit? Arnhem, Arnhem <laughs> Bridge Arnhem Squad Bridge. Leader Historical Game? No. Because oh. um, all the scenarios are, are all laid out. I thought it was mm. a, at least a week in there fighting. Yeah. But yeah, so you had this whole river crossing, which was amazing. Yeah. Now, speaking of gaming, that's not for you people who are just interested in the books, but a lot of scenarios in Advanced Squad Leader that cover these actions, taking the little bridges of Vagel, Oi Vagel, and all those other scenarios. There's a, one or two on that river crossing that I know I've played. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, with the Americans. On the river crossing itself. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, and that was pretty scary and vividly, vividly written, right? The Americans say. Had to get these boats up, and then they got these British boats. They were really like not liking them too much. <laughs> Just little flimsy yeah. canvas like boats, cardboard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had rubber duckies in them. That should have been a warning sign. That mm. uh, yeah. Well, and yeah. each boat was supposed to have how many paddles? Six or eight paddles. Oh, yeah, and a lot of them only had right, two. And they didn't, they yeah. were short on paddles. So I mean, that whole thing. That I don't think the 
the movie did a very good job portraying how difficult a decision this must have been for General Gavin to decide that two platoons needed to cross the river. To take the bridge from both ends. To take the bridge from the other side. And as it turns out, they had to do it during broad daylight. I mean, and without I, really the smoke coverage, it didn't it, seem to work. They out tried it, but it well. didn't work out very well. Yeah. yeah, it was dissipating too fast. Yeah. So the guys get in these boats. That was Cook. That yeah. was Jerm, uh, Julian Cook. Uh, led that, and uh, the bravery of these commanders. Oh, gosh, you know who yeah. who can't show the fear to the troops. And he said, he stood up and he said, I'll cross standing up like George Washington crossing. Oh, yeah, making a joke. The Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. And as it turns out, he didn't. He paddled with his, with the butt of his rifle and said, Hail Mary's all the way across. Yeah, yeah. They depicted that in the movie, too, with Robert Redford saying, Hail Mary. Mm -hmm. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the rifle butts, they don't work really well. I can't Jim, imagine. Oh gosh, I can't well. imagine. Remember yeah. when Jim and I went out to Lake Michigan and we tried crossing in a canoe with his uh, World War II rifles? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. like, How far out? did we get? Sure. Like, <laughs> we just like sat there and spun in circles. Yeah, yeah right. It's like we yeah. could not coordinate yeah. it at all. It was, and then that stupid Coast Guard come by. Right. The heck you guys doing? Yeah. They're so mean. It's a reenactment. <laughs> Leave us alone. But Jim, you really do. Really you really do have World War II rifles. <laughs> we didn't say that on the air. He official. does, yeah. So you told uh, the I, I do. Quick it's rundown. Now more official. You got a grand? Yeah. yeah. Now we're actually recording. Oh, okay. Well, I, I have actually four M1 Garands, about four 30 caliber carbines with the paratroopers jumped with, hmm. um, two Molson de Gantz, the Russian rifle, uh, three K98s, the German rifle, but I have nothing that the Japanese used. Yeah. Then I have some other toys too that are non-war related, but yeah, that's pretty much the war collection. Interesting. You didn't bring those. I did not bring. You probably them. don't no, travel with those. I, I would have had I known. You would have been interested. Yeah. yeah, yeah but no. do, do you know this? Go- uh, we, we probably could have set up a little fire. Yeah, a little. Down here. Yeah, yeah. There's room. I've got my <laughs> dad's noise, rifles the, over there. The noise. But, the, speaking of the noise, the noise yeah. with just one rifle can be really deafening. I cannot imagine oh, a battle. In, yeah. In this. yeah. Isn't that a World War Two? Jeff's got a knife. It's not World War Two. No. Oh, it's just a, pay, a letter opener. No, this is a, <laughs> this is a paratrooper's knife. This was uh, Robin's dad was in Airborne. Oh, he was in the eighty second Airborne. Okay, but not World War Two. No, after no, yeah. Oh, okay, but I'll uh, just brief side story. <laughs> Let me digress for a moment. Uh, I had my custodian. This is back in my early days of teaching. So we're talking nineteen eighty six people, well before any school shootings at all. So don't judge me too harshly. But my we were doing the Revolutionary stuff, War stuff in the early French and Indian War, and my custodian guy, this biker dude, goes, I got a like a brown best, I think, you know, I made it myself. You can make them. And then I rebuilt it, reconstruction. And, and you know, you know how you load it. It's all historical. I'm like, hey, that would be cool. Why don't you bring that in? And now this would be okay in 85, 86, yeah, right? Yeah. Even yeah. up to the 90s, early 90s. And the only mistake I made, I brought it in. I didn't pre-tell the kids Hey, I have a weapon here. We're gonna look at. It's a reproduction. It's so you pull safe. Out your desk, I pulled. Kids gathering the door. <laughs> oh my god! I pulled it up. I pulled it up, and there was a gasp. Now they didn't run for the doors because, again, there was no fear in those days. Like it's just like, okay, what's that for? But it was a gasp enough that I realized, oh, I should have prefaced this as a historical thing. You know, interesting. I think there's a. 
I think there's no statute of limitations on dumb things like that, Dave. So you, you might still get in trouble for that. Well, and here's how far we've come. We just had lunch uh, um, Saturday with a friend, Chris Walters. I don't know. Some of you may know Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Barbara's. Barbara Walters. I know Barbara. <laughs> I hang out with Barbara. Yeah, I guess Chris was before your time. He played okay. a lot of ASL, too, at me in Passel. Oh, okay. In the okay. early, early Passel days. But he said his, his school did a reenactment of World War II with guns and artillery firing and blanks on campus. And he wrote a letter complaining. And at first, Laura and I were thinking he was joking. Like, are you joking? He goes, no, I'm serious. They have a no-gun policy. They violated for this reenactment thing. I'm like, but but it's history, Chris. And he goes, I don't. I said in the letter, go to Cantini, go to a mm, go to a place yeah. where it's in context. Show a Do movie. Not- <laughs> Show a movie. But yeah. I was, am I? I mean, that's how how different is that? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. From oh yeah, nowadays. Well, I don't nowadays. Like zero tolerance rules to begin with, but I mean, well, he also he's very much a pacifist because he did say, you know. I don't think the school should be promoting that pro-war ideology. In addition, I'm like, but, but Chris, you got to teach the war. He's going to call me a hypocrite yeah. for playing squad leader. But, yeah. but um, well, the history is important. I would agree with that. But some people even go that far. You know, the, the Air and Water Show. They say that's a military commercial. And you know, do they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've not oh, yeah. heard okay. that. No, I've yeah. heard that. Huh. Well, there's some things to yeah. think about. Can I jump back to this Gavin thing? So. And Mike, when you mentioned that they the, the British tankers and Jeff, you love when they stop for tea, don't you? The tankers? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's one of my favorite parts. I think. Good show. Good show. He loves. Good show. I say. He loves the. But Gavin got really ticked. Oh, I remember don't, how mad I mean, Gavin I was. I can't hardly blame him. Yeah, that was just. Well, that's crazy. they were supposed to be bringing the boats up too. I mean, no, no, that was after, right? Well, that, they after had, after they, they'd used the boats, got to the other side. And then they were well, that bridge. too that they, they did. I mean, they stopped for tea, yeah. but also oh, he, was, he, for the he, wasn't, oh. he wasn't going to go on anyways because he said he wasn't going any further without specific orders. Yeah, and, yes, yeah. that's what the guy British tanker yeah. said. And right. so, isn't that legitimate though? Well, I think isn't so, Gavin yeah. a little angry without reason there? Well, it was it was yeah, Cook but, then, right? Who was arguing on the other side of the river? Right. Yeah. 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 That was Cook. Yeah. yeah. Right. Cook was upset that they couldn't. They couldn't press on after he made this huge sacrifice yeah, of maybe exactly. half of the forces that he crossed with. Even though they took retribution pretty uh, pretty vehemently against the Germans that's, that they came up against, which was really tough reading. When you see, yeah. first of all, There's they, they crimes, cross in these, in these boats and they're just getting shot up like ducks. Mm-hmm. But they do get across... And then they're going up against these Germans who are then trying to surrender, like 30 at a time. Like, we give up, we give up, and they're just mowing them down because they're so... Yeah, they're they're back to the squad leader game, that's when I fully understood fanaticism. Oh, uh, he coming off of, yeah, right. being so yeah, upset. And, right. And, stuff, yeah. and, just go, and yeah. you know, freaking out and, yeah, yeah you got to go till, yeah. till you eliminate yeah, somebody. Really, yeah. It's yeah, do you thing, think yeah. Gavin was overpraised in the book? Or I mean, I've always heard he was a great guy. I don't want to bad. Oh, I never, I never heard of him until reason. this book. But he was one of the few great commanders that he wrote about that wasn't killed. Every time he started talking about a commander who was really great and loved by his men, that was like foreshadowing. Oh, that oh, guy was, well, that's die. a good. Yeah. I noticed that a lot. Right. Yeah, I thought, yeah. wow, this oh, you're is right. this is horrible. Every guy, right. yeah, every guy. But it, it was amazing love. how Gavin could just just be present you know he found some guys in the woods or whatever he was gavin's walking around and 
all of a sudden they were they came out of their foxholes. They were ready to fight now just because this one guy's there. That's yeah. amazing that yeah. right. yeah. some men can instill that. I don't know how they kept going day after day. I mean, just think of the exhaustion. Mm-hmm. I th- or that one we had 11 inches of, kind of snow here. In, in the, <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> we had 11 inches of snow here, and I shoveled it over the last three days. I'm wiped. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm wiped. Don't ask to me pack to, it in. Yeah. Don't, don't ask me to do anything else. <laughs> And I'm sorry, what, what were you saying, Jim? <laughs> the platoon, I can't remember the name of the um, platoon leader, the lieutenant. They were isolated for like three days. And Oh, yes. Yeah, right, right. And so they had to be awake and all the time. For yes. Me. They were constantly under yeah. fire. <sighs> I can't imagine. But exactly. it's really good history. I think it's important to, for people to read this and underst- understand it. And you really get a sense of what it's like, I think. It's not the kind of thing that you then want to go and start a war. Well, no, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, you want them to understand the sacrifice that was made that people were willing to do for the life and society that we have today. I think that's why the history mm-hmm. is important. I think that was your point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have that scene with the um, blowing the bridge. Yeah. Was it, Which bridge was that? Was that Where it didn't Nymagen? blow? Yeah. Where it didn't blow was Nymagen. Nymagen. Yeah. Nymagen, yeah. yeah. Atop a concrete pillbox on the north side of the Val, General Heinz Harmel, commander of the 10th SS Panzer Division, was holding a pair of binoculars tightly to his eyes, studying the bridge amid the twilight. Pacey's tank came into view, then Robinson's, then Billingham's tank, steadily creeping over the bridge. The orders from Harmel's corps commander, Lieutenant General Wilhelm Bietrich, and his superior, Field Marshal Model. Commander of Army Group B were very clear. The bridge must not be destroyed. Maudel felt he would need to counterattack the Allied-held pockets along Hell's Highway. Harmel had argued in vain for the destruction of the bridge. A few hours earlier, when the Americans had launched their reckless river crossing, he never imagined that it could succeed. Somehow it had. Now, with the paratroopers making trouble on the northern side of the river, and the British tanks rolling onto the bridge, his worst nightmare was coming to fruition. If this continued, the Allies might actually punch through thinly held Lent, the North Bank suburb of Nijmegen, and make a real push for the embattled British perimeter in the Arnhem area. Model's orders had not kept Harmel from preparing the bridge for demolition just in case. Now, as he watched the British tanks roll under the bridge span, his mind was racing. What shall I do? He wondered. What is most urgent, most important? The more he thought, the more he convinced himself that, if Modell were here and could see for himself what was unfolding, he too would agree that the bridge had to be destroyed. The 38-year-old Harmel was an experienced combat leader who fought in France, Yugoslavia, and Russia. He knew that sometimes a commander on the scene must make a difficult decision, even one that contravenes orders. Harmel knew that right here, right now, the bridge had to go. There was really no other choice. On the ground beside him, a soldier was huddling over a plunger, looking at Harmel, eagerly awaiting his orders. The general lowered his binoculars and looked at the man. Okay, let it blow, he said. The man lowered the plunger. Nothing happened. He tried again. Still, nothing happened. For some reason, the charges did not work. Why didn't the bridge blow? Oh, there was confusion about that historically. Yeah. 
Wasn't they say the little Dutch guy did it? So, they said something well, about right. that. Yeah, yeah, the Dutch believe somebody in him. sabotaged yeah, it. A hero, but it seems really unlikely. Hmm. Jeff, you always told me it was your grandmother. Cut yeah. the wires yeah. at Nijmegen. Grandma you, Dagny. She was nowhere in the story. She was. You made that up. <laughs> no, she was. I refuse to believe you now. She was in the Swedish underground. And she wandered. She, well, she wandered away from home one day and ended up in Holland. <laughs> so yeah, they have a statue to that guy, that kid. Oh, young yeah, man. is that right? Yeah. Yes, at, yeah. in in that town. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, they thought it was just not properly wired, or explosions blew up. Though, did, did they say that? I think it had to do with the wiring the way they did it because weren't there a lot of engineers on the bridge when they got there and stuff? They were oh like, trying to fix it, maybe. right? That's what okay. I think. Yeah. Oh, what were the guys tied up in the girders? Were those snipers? those were engineers too? Oh they? yeah, they yeah. thought they were snipers, but they were working on something. Right. Yeah. So that was a good thing because yeah. they'd had they'd had enough and that that and that was interesting too. Back earlier in the book, after this, after the Germans blew up the river, uh, the bridge on the Sun River. The British came up with their Bailey bridges and put those things together, which was really interesting and interesting in the movie to see those in action. How that mm-hmm. how that gets done. Merry Christmas to you, George Bailey, in jail. <laughs> Sorry, right. the word Bailey yes. threw me into a different film. Isn't that it. the film we're reviewing? That's next? it. <laughs> we could. Is the Bailey, Bailey bridges named after George very, Bailey? Very good, Lionel right. Barrymore. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mister Potter. Uh, how about the frogmen? Did you know about that? Do you remember that? The frogmen? The Germans? Yeah. Yeah, they, they tried to come down and blow down, the bridge. Sneaking down the river. Yeah, sneaking down yeah. the river, yeah. Dressed as frogs. It said that the color they chose the wrong kind of color green for their frog costumes, so they didn't blend in with the natural frogs of the region, that the natural frogs <laughs> oh, were yeah. a different color, and so they were spotted and shot. But somebody were, did, somebody didn't right. look at them and yes. say, wait a minute, that's oh. a, those are very rare. Do not shoot those frogs. <laughs> they're, they're those frogs are different. Than, uh, regular frogs <laughs> yeah, too, they were right? too large. Too. Well, they were too large. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think the book had the conversation, but hey, look, get a load of those frogs. Yeah, I think they cut that out. I, I think, think that think ended up real. in the editors. Uh, yeah, but I had, I had no knowledge of this. I was surprised no, to I read didn't that either. too. That they, the, yeah, Germans, and they almost blew it up. Yeah, They had another malfunction. And then it was like, everyone else was like, ooh, guess we should have been posting some watches down for the river, you know? I don't know. Oh, when they instituted the patrols with the, the, the lights and yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. To protect the bridge. You'd be ashamed to capture the whole thing and then yeah, have, have a frog man. Have a frog just up. swim up and yeah. stick some charges on it yeah. from underwater. So I think that's it overall. Uh, yeah. Really good book. I I thought the yeah. book was very very good. It makes me want to read more by John McManus. I know he's got a book about D Day and some other stuff, but I really like the way he writes. I think it's very well constructed, and I think he's I don't know if he's a local guy, but he does he has done some work with Cantini and the First Division Museum uh, here just outside of Chicago. Oh, he has. Oh, he he's wow, given given some that. credit to that for his uh, D Day oh, okay. coverage of the First Divisions. Uh, I think actually his book on D Day is. All about the First Division's participation oh, okay. in the Normandy invasion. So maybe we'll have him on the show sometime. Well, I'm sure him. he would be really happy. He's going to see a big spike in his book sales after when this podcast <laughs> yeah, ends. Right. All, yeah, all, right. all 500 yeah. listeners will yeah. buy a book. That would actually probably be a spike yeah. if, you got, if you got every listener to buy a book. But um, unless our listenership's gone off, remember, friends, tell everyone about us. Spread the word. 
Yep. Tell your friends, um, tell your neighbors. And speaking of well written, I followed this book with Oh Dave fell asleep. Nixon. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Nixon alone in the White House. Reeves. No, not Christopher Reeves. Don't make a joke. I don't know. The guy's actually in the Century Films I show at school talking about that decade and era in the historical films. So he's a respected writer, but after this easier reading and larger, a little larger print here, and I, I found his writing to be a little bit harder to follow. Mm. It's harder to follow. It's, I just so so I would hand it to McManus for making this easy to follow yeah. along, not dumbed down. No, oh, no, no, not a bit. No, but no. the Nixon thing, there were a lot of things I, and I think if you didn't know a lot about the era in history, it would be con- confusing. So sentences would say like, and then Bob Smith, um, you know, CIA second in command chief, blah, 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 that you could get lost real easy. Mm. But I know a lot about Nixon now. I, I learned a lot too. Like guy was way more paranoid and breaking more laws than I was aware of. Hmm. Really? Oh, they were they were they were wiretapping everybody. I mean, <laughs> it was just paranoia. Took Nixon down. So I'd if like you to guys read want that the book, I'll give it to you. I I would like to read it because I followed this with Green Eggs and Ham, and I found. <laughs> Is it green eggs? Is it really green eggs and ham? Is this a so you is thought this an was allegory? Written too hard, then. Yeah, I think this book was too hard. Well, uh, I guess that wraps it up for this show. That'll wrap it up. Thanks okay. everybody yep. for listening to Spine and Sprocket. Thanks Jim McDermott for Thank joining us much. on this. We yeah. hope you'll Can join you us for the next come episode back next week for the next show. Um, not on Monday. Yeah. Okay. okay. We'll, we'll record well, the movie well, review. Of, all of our of guests. Too far. Uh, all of our guests oh. stay at the Hyatt Regency in O'Hare. We put them in the best suite at the hotel <laughs> they have, there. Yeah. The, the, the accommodations are, are yeah. fantastic. Yeah. 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 And Mike, thanks for joining us as usual. And Dave, you're a permanent fixture here, so that's great. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye now. Good night. Spine. And sprocket.